0: Is there any diversity rationale for affirmative action in higher education? Well, four legal scholars have just released a study that they say provides some of the first empirical evidence to support the idea that diversity enhances higher education outcomes. Forbes reports that the study, which is called Assessing Affirmative Action's Diversity Rationale, is to be published in the Columbia Law Review and is sure to stir heated debate as lawsuits challenging race-conscious college admission policies continue to be filed in But is there really a solid diversity rationale or, in fact, have these race-based preference standards actually harmed higher education? We're going to talk about it today with Gail Harriet, law professor at the University of San Diego and member of the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights. She co-chaired both the 1996 campaign for California's Proposition 209 and the successful 2020 campaign to prevent its repeal. And she is editor of a new book called A Dubious Expediency, How Race Preferences Damage Higher Education. And Gail, wonderful to talk to you again How are you doing? I'm just fine Thanks so much for having me on the show, Janet Well, you bet It's great to have you here I, I'm wondering, as active as you have been in California on this issue for such a long time what, what do you make of the fact that the value of race-based preferences in higher education is still a matter of such a huge debate?
1: It's interesting because, you know, the American people, when you poll them on this issue, uh, have been extremely consistent. Uh, If you look at polls going back even to the 1970s, uh, Americans have always opposed race preferential admissions. Uh, They're against uh, race discrimination as a matter of principle. Um, And instead, what you find is there is a very thin layer um, of, of... academics, uh, people in high positions um, who think that race preferences are a good idea. Um, And time and time again, uh, voters vote them down. Uh, Most recently here in California, let me add deep blue California. If there's any state in the union where you'd expect uh, that race preferential treatment in, in college admissions would pass, it would be California. And yet overwhelmingly, voters voted it
0: down. They believe in the principle um, of
1: colorblindness.
0: Well, Uh, that's right. And it's interesting, too, because I know the Supreme Court may hear this case out of Harvard Students for Fair Admissions v. Harvard, which is all about this policy at Harvard that is seen as discriminatory against Asian-Americans and not giving them the same preferences. So again, it looks like the Supreme Court may be taking it up. And this has been going on a long time, going all the way back to the Bakke decision.
1: Oh, absolutely. Uh, And for Asians, it's especially difficult. Um, Asian Americans have to be that much better um, than any other applicant in -hmm. order to get into... To a college or university, uh, and that's that to me. That's un-American. It, it shouldn't matter what one's skin color is. It should matter what one's academic credentials and other credentials. I'm not arguing that colleges and universities should only consider uh, SAT scores or, or, or grade point averages. There are a lot of things that go into what colleges and universities should should consider uh, when it comes to to admissions, and different colleges and universities can and should have different ways of looking uh, at this matter. But race shouldn't be one of the things that they consider. That should be verboten. Um, And we'll see whether the Supreme Court uh, is willing to take this, this case, Students for Fair Admissions versus Harvard University. We'll see probably in the next few weeks Um, The petition for cert, as they call it, uh, was filed back, I think, at the end of February, uh, and then there were quite a few friend-of-the-court briefs, including one filed by me, um, asking the court, please take this case. Uh, And we'll see. We'll see probably sometime this month, we'll see.
0: Yeah, right now I mentioned this study that just came out or is about to come out in the Columbia Law Review talking about this diversity rationale. And apparently this shows that after these prestigious law reviews adopted diversity policies for choosing student editors, the articles they published were cited more often. Now, would you see that as being a diversity (laughs) rationale? Seems a little thin to me, but I'm not the expert that you are. Uh, Cited more often just
1: means there's more and more of this literature out there, and so everything gets cited more than it used to. Yeah. That's a very funny way to be, be, be measuring uh, whether or not this has been a good idea. Um, so I would say that is not a good measure. You know, there have been lots of, of efforts to prove uh, that diversity is a good thing. Uh, back when the Supreme Court was considering uh, this issue back in like 2003 in the Grutter versus Bollinger case, which was against the University of Michigan, uh, there was a study that basically, you know, what happens if you tell students that, that diversity is really important and then you poll them and ask them, is <laughs> diversity is Im- is important? And their answer, of course, will be, yeah, that's what I was taught, it's important. Yeah. And that was their proof that that, that racial diversity is. Um, you know, is a good thing. And of course, you know, I'm in favor of racial diversity, but not if it means that you're discriminating on the basis of
0: race to get it. Right, exactly right. Now, you, you talk in this book, and it's such a great book for people to understand this entire issue, but you talk about how racial preferences have actually damaged higher education. What would you point to? I know there are a number of different things that you discuss in the book and the different authors address, but what would you say are some of the most uh, significant Race preferential damage examples that you have on what 's going on in the university and, and college system, especially well one of the,
1: the, the issues that 's most important to me is what Thomas Soul uh, calls mismatch, and that is whenever you give preferential treatment to to one group and not to another. Uh, It means that the students who get into that particular college and university on a preference will ordinarily have academic credentials that put them towards the bottom of the class. This is complete poison, especially in the area of science and engineering. Uh, And that, of course, includes medicine and dentistry and everything else that's related. What happens is that we actually have fewer African-American physicians, dentists, engineers, Scientists than we would have had if those students had not gotten a preference, and so they had gone to the school where their academic credentials put them in the ballpark with other students. Um, For example, you know, and it's not just this is not just a matter of race, this is any kind of a preference, you know, Caltech. Um, You know, here in California is one of the hardest schools to get into in, in, in the entire country, in fact, in the world. And those people, they are literally, the students that get in, they are literally rocket scientists. You know, very, very smart. Um and very, very good at math and science. You know, when I was in high school, I was good at math and science too, but not Caltech good. (laughs) Uh, If you had sent me to a school where my credentials were similar to other students, um, you know, I could have come out as a scientist or engineer, but you put me in with the Caltech students and it would be utterly intimidating. You know, I would have to say, oh my gosh, I'm not good at this after all. Uh, And I would probably have switched majors. And that's what happens time and time again. Uh, to African-American students, also to legacy students, students who get into a college on a preference because they're, they're, their mother or their grandfather went to that school. Uh, it's not a good idea to go to a school where your academic credentials put you at the bottom of the class, and it's an especially bad idea uh, for math and science students. Yeah. We, you know, again, we'd have more African-American doctors more African-American engineers today uh, if we had simply used uh, admissions policies um, that don't grant preferential
0: treatment. Well, right. It would seem that you would have a much better shot if you were to go to a school that might not be quite as high up as Caltech or Harvard or some of the other top schools and instead maybe went to a state school but graduated at the top of your class. Wouldn't that give you a better shot in the job market? It sure would. You know, there are plenty of great state universities uh, that may be a
1: little easier to get into than, than Caltech or Harvard, uh, but if you come out of those schools with honors, uh, you're going to do well in life. Yeah. Uh, if you simply come out in the middle of the class, you're going to do well, well in life. Uh, but being at the very bottom of a class, any class, um, is a problem. And too many of our minority students end
0: up at the bottom of the class. Well, and that's very significant. Thomas Sowell obviously knows what he's talking about and has been a great voice on these issues. But there is a lot more to talk about. We'll come back with Professor Gail Harriet. A Dubious Expediency is the name of the book she's edited. You're listening to Janet Meffer today. We'll be right back. This is Janet Mefford. On a 100 degree day in Ethiopia, Africa, hundreds gathered for Sunday worship outdoors, and some walked an hour to be there. Afterward, 30 year old Cademan frantically copied scriptures from an old Bible to a piece of paper. Then his face turned sad as he closed the Bible and handed it back to its owner, one of only a few in that church of hundreds to have a Bible. You see, Cademan loves the Lord, leads his family, and is faithful at Sunday worship, but he's never read a single verse in his own Bible, because Bibles are very difficult to obtain where he lives. Whoever comes our way and is able to give us a Bible, it will be a great blessing. Through the ministry of Bible League International, you can send God's Word to a new believer in Africa. $5 sends one Bible, $50 sends 10. Call 800-YES-WORD, 800 E S W O 800-YES-WORD, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. Thank you. Hi, this is Janet Mefford. If you're in need of a new healthcare program but you missed the open enrollment deadline in December, it's not too late. A special enrollment period is taking place now through August 15th. During this time, you can enroll in the healthcare program of your choice without the need for a qualifying event. This means you can now enroll in a healthcare sharing program from Liberty Health Share with memberships for individuals, couples, and families. You can find a variety of options to best suit your medical needs. Plus, you really can choose the doctor and hospital of your choice. Best of all, membership options start for as low as $199 a month. More than 200,000 Americans trust Liberty HealthShare for their health care needs. What are you waiting for? Discover more about the power of sharing at libertyhealthshare.org slash jmt today. For more information, call 855-585-4237 855-585-4237 or libertyhealthshare.org slash jmt libertyhealthshare.org slash jmt Welcome back. How does race, actually racial preferences, damage higher education? A Dubious Expediency is the new book explaining all of this edited by Professor Gail Harriet, who's law professor at the University of San Diego and has long been involved on this whole issue of racially based preferences at higher education. And, you know, Gail, when we're talking about some of the problems that are created when you have race based preferences, it probably goes a long way to explain why these polls are what they are, that so many Americans say, you know, this is not right. We we want to have everybody in America succeed, and we don't want anybody uh, held back because of their race in any sense. But there are problems that are created when you start embracing racial preferences. Now, another thing that you mention, and I know this is mentioned in the book, John Ellis is one of the people who writes an article in your book who is graduate dean at the University of California, Santa Cruz. He talks about the fact that these preferences have ended up damaging free expression and affecting curriculum and even increasing the issue of grade inflation. What about some of those problems on the practical level, just what students experience as they're going through college because of these preferences?
1: Oh, boy. Yeah. Well, grade inflation uh, is a a real problem uh, on campuses, and it has been for decades now, and it is partly driven By race preferential admissions policies. You know, nobody um, of goodwill wants to see minority students getting, you know, bad grades uh, simply because they were given preferential treatment um, in admissions. And now nobody wants to admit that this, you know, this isn't working out the way they hoped it would. Um, And so grade inflation uh, has marched on. Um, in in colleges and universities for the last several decades. Uh, Another aspect of this that I think is hugely important, um, and Peter Kersenau, who is my colleague on the Commission on Civil Rights, uh, writes about it in the book, and that is campus separatism. Mm. You know, these days, if you go to a college campus, you will often see uh, dormitories that are that are that are specially, um, you know, based on, on racial studies of one sort or another. In theory, these dorms are open to everyone. However, when you open a dorm and you say, "Well, this is this is for the study of of you know African American culture," what happens in reality is that that dormitory um, is lived in. Um, exclusively or almost exclusively by people of the particular race that it's devoted to. We have, you know, special graduation ceremonies based on race. Uh, We have special student lounges based on race. You know, the argument here is that we need to provide safe spaces. Well, it's all nonsense. Uh, We should be trying to integrate colleges and universities. The whole point um, of race preferential admissions policies was that we need to integrate um, racial minorities into, you know, the, the mainstream. And yet, and yet what happens instead um, is this campus separatism. Um, and, and Pete Personnel argues against that in the essay uh, that he contributed to the book. Uh, and it's, it's a hugely important issue. We cannot go on uh, separating people by race in this way. And yet, the admissions policies telegraph to these students what's most important about you is your race. That's why we let you in. Wow. So, you know, who should be surprised under the circumstances yeah. uh, that students then demand these, these separate spaces um, and College administrators have not been willing to stand up to it. Uh, they, they allow it, uh, and then they turn around um, and argue we need race preferential admissions in order to, to better integrate um, you know, our, our country, and yet we're doing the opposite. We're just doing the exact opposite, wow. separating people by race on campus.
0: Well, right. And it's going backwards. Wasn't the 60s about ending segregation? A lot of people have made these observations that as we've seen the rise of wokeness and this leftist activism and trying to race bait and call people white supremacists, even though they don't have a shred of supremacy or racism in them. It, we're going backwards now, back to the 60s. I mean, what what is the sense in doing this? Well, you're exactly right, Janet. That's what we're doing, and that's why we need to get back
1: to the principle um, that race discrimination of any kind um, is wrong. Yeah. Um, it's true. We need to be doing a better job uh, of integrating uh, our communities, including our campus communities, but we're doing just the opposite. Uh, the, more, the more we engage in race preferential admissions, uh, the more it's going to be impossible Uh, to achieve the kind of integration uh, that I think, you know, almost all Americans want.
0: Exactly. Well, now, what has happened? You obviously have been very involved, as we mentioned before, in California. What has happened in states in which these race preferential admissions have been outlawed, especially in California, where you are? Well, in California, you know, the
1: universities, the state universities that are affected uh, have tried very, very hard to get Proposition 209 repealed. They have failed in that. They also try to get around it as best they can, um, but they can't do it entirely. Uh, what they can do under the law um, is to give preferential treatment—you know—a little a thumb on the scale uh, in favor uh, of people who come from from um, you know disadvantaged backgrounds. You know, there's nothing illegal about saying we are going to give a little bit of a preference uh, to people who are raised by, by poor families. Um, you know, that's legal, um, and that's one thing that my co-editor. Uh, and I, my co-editor is is Myman Schwarzschild who's also here on the faculty at the University of San Diego. Uh, And Myman is more wary of of, of that kind of preferential treatment than I am. We both agree that if it's a large preference, it's going to have the same mismatch problem um, that racial preferences have. But racial preferences tend not to be small. They tend to be very, very large. Um, And the University of California... Uh, when it gives preferences based on socioeconomic you know, disadvantage, it tends to be small because you know, otherwise it doesn't get them what they want. Um, what they really want is racial diversity. That What they really want is, is to get rid of Proposition 209. Uh, but when they do it based on disadvantage, there are a lot of, of disadvantaged whites, disadvantaged Asians um, you know, in the state of California as well. Um, and so... The kind of preference I think we're talking about with socioeconomic class has not gotten out of hand the way race did. Um, So, you know, that's that's a good thing. Uh, Right after Proposition 209 passed, we had basically a miracle here in California, Uh, and that is suddenly, suddenly, uh, African-American students... Uh, we're doing much, much better uh, at the University of California. Here at the University of California at San Diego, which is just up the road from where I am, um, prior to Prop 209, uh, they had had only one African American honor student uh, out of out of it. I don't remember the, the exact number right now off the top of my head, uh, but it was a very, very, very you know poor performance. Um, but right after Prop two o nine went into effect, suddenly African American students were getting honors at basically the same rate uh, as white nation students wow. uh, and the number of, of African American students who were you know performing poorly, that is that is um, you know getting getting low grades, you know basically disappeared. It became about the same rate uh, as white nations. So it was a giant success story um a Economist at Duke University has studied the University of California uh, and its graduation rates um, post Prop 209 more carefully uh, and found that, yeah, um, suddenly uh, African-American students uh, were basically doing as well as everyone else. They were getting, you know, they were graduating uh, at rates that were much higher than what they were prior uh, to Prop 209 when California was simply giving huge preferences.
0: That is great. But you would think if people were trying to be fair minded about it, that they would look at those numbers and say, well, let's not push for affirmative action like we used to, because clearly that wasn't the answer. And yet the left in California doesn't seem to be going down that road. They seem to want to go back where they were for reasons known only to them. I guess it's just activist mindsets that that ails them.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. It's activist mindset. The notion that, you know, they've been pushing for this for years, and when evidence comes up that it's not doing the good that they're hoping that it would do,
0: they just ignore it.
1: Yeah, Um, they do. and, And,
0: you know, that's a tragedy. Well, it is. Now, where do you see this issue headed in an age like ours that's increasingly yelling about racial injustice and fixing inequities and, you know, the systemic racism problem and all this wokeness? What is likely to occur at our universities, do you think, regarding race-based preferences in the environment that we're heading into, which, again, as we discussed before, seems to be going backwards?
1: Yeah, it does seem to be going backwards, but I'm I'm actually kind of optimistic right now. Uh, maybe that's crazy of me, uh, but I think we've bottomed out. Um, and I think people are starting to push back. I mean, for goodness sake, that's why Myman and I wanted to edit this, this book. We saw that it was becoming increasingly difficult for people even to talk about this issue. So we thought, well, we gotta, we got to turn this around. we got to start talking about it. Um, you know, with the defeat of Prop 16 here in California, we, we understood that, yeah, the American people are on our side on this issue, and I think a lot of people get it. They understand how destructive these, these preferences have been. And I think we're starting to see things turn around. Okay. We're starting to see people say, hey, you know, we do need to speak up. And with any luck, the Supreme Court is going to see that, and they are going to take on the Harvard case. And, you know, my guess is they won't issue a, 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 an opinion that absolutely, positively, you know, we are turning this around. They'll do it bit by bit. Um, and, you know... T- I am waking up every morning and hoping you know that the Supreme Court does take that case because I think it will take the judiciary to help a bit yeah. uh, to make this happen yeah. um, but i am I am optimistic that people are getting sick and tired of the notion um, that that everything is racism, and that the principle that race discrimination is wrong is itself racist yeah. of course it 's not racist yeah. uh, and it's something that we need to get back to and we can't allow herself to be bullied
0: absolutely and like you say the real conflict in all of this is about the means of racial integration not the rightness of racial integration which i think everybody wants and and that's yeah that's such a good point that you make a dubious expediency professor gail harriet with us thank you so much gail it was great to have you here. wonderful book thank you janet take care you're listening to janet mefford today
1: This is Janet Mefford Today, and now
0: here's your host, Janet Mefford. Well, this is interesting coming from Breitbart. The White House is reportedly actively looking to dump Dr. Anthony Fauci amid all of his recent flip-flopping and these newly released emails showing further contradictions on the pandemic response. That's quite interesting. That's coming from Jack Posobiec, who was with the Trump administration. They are apparently in the Biden White House discussing an exit strategy for the highest paid federal employee whom Democrats have praised as a truth teller. Well, that's going to be a little difficult to do now that we have seen some of these emails, now that we have seen his performance in front of, Congress and Senator Rand Paul's grilling of Dr. Fauci revealing that the guy can't tell the truth. There's a lot on that guy. And it goes back to the show that I did not too long ago, all about this gain of function research and Nicholas Wade's piece on Medium, the former New York Times science reporter pointing directly to the fact that, yes, this was a lab leak. That's where the coronavirus came from. And that, in fact, Fauci had a role in funding the Bat Lady who likely created the coronavirus. Those are sealed records, by the way, as we've talked about before, but we know what's going on. And Rand Paul actually has accused Dr. Fauci of perjuring himself. So, hmm Little too late to do the right thing now. I don't know. I mean, at what point it, the pandemic is essentially over when we have masks being dropped and we have so many people vaccinated and life is getting back to normal. Now they're going to fire him. Why didn't you fire him a couple of weeks in? That would have been a better move. It really does grieve me that President Trump didn't do a better job sniffing these people out. And I feel for him. I'm not trying to criticize him too severely because nobody really knew what was going on initially. We were all kind of flying blind. I can only imagine what it was like to be the president of the United States in early 2020 when you're trying to get a handle on the scope of the problem. And what do you do? And we've never been in this situation before. So I give him some grace. But boy, looking back, I sure wish that Trump had gotten rid of both Fauci and Burks, the scarf wearer. So here is the deal on these released emails. Again, Breitbart and some other outlets are reporting on this. Uh, This was something that Dr. Fauci replied to Sylvia Burwell, president of American University and former U.S. Health and Human Services Secretary. This was on February 5th, 2020. And the Washington Post reported about this, by the way. This all came about because there was an FOI request, a Freedom of Information request, getting all of these emails showing what Fauci was doing on email during the early days of the pandemic. And this is what he said to Sylvia Burwell. This is Fauci. He said, masks are really for infected people to prevent them from spreading infection to people who are not infected rather than protecting uninfected people from acquiring infections. That's funny. The typical mask you buy in the drugstore is not really effective in keeping out virus, which is small enough to pass through the material. It might, however, provide some slight benefit in keeping out gross droplets if someone coughs or sneezes on you. I do not recommend that you wear a mask particularly since you are going to be a very low risk location. I don't know what that means. Your instincts are correct. Money is best spent on medical countermeasures such as diagnostics and vaccines. So there he is. It's the same thing that he basically said in March of 2020 on 60 Minutes. At that time, he said there's no reason to be walking around with a mask when you're in the middle of an outbreak wearing a mask might make people feel a little bit better, and it might even block a droplet, but it's not providing the perfect protection that people think that it it is. And often there are unintended consequences. People keep fiddling with the mask and they keep touching their face. Now, outlets like CNN later reported, oh, Fauci changed his mind. It was just a mistake to not recommend that people wear a mask. But you know what? it's, It's ridiculous because that's not really the full story here. What happened was Fauci was saying, yeah, you don't really need a mask. And then he went all in on masks. He went all in on masks. So one way or another, he was lying. And in fact, what we're reading here in this email from Dr. Fauci to Sylvia Burwell, he was telling the truth because we've already played the audio of a lot of these government videos, such as OSHA, that already said the same thing. If you're wearing one of those little blue masks with white on the other side, that's not going to prevent you from getting COVID-19 because the size of the holes is bigger than the virus. So the virus is not going to be stopped by those masks. Fauci was saying the same thing. And the question is, why in the world... As the highest paid employee and the COVID-19 guru, didn't you stick to your guns and say, we shouldn't have mask mandates because they're not going to do any good. And if you are uninfected, you're not going to be prevented from catching COVID-19 by wearing a mask. There's no reason to have uninfected people walking around with masks. Why didn't he stick to that? Why didn't he stick to that? He could have had a huge effect, especially given the degree to which the left worships him and everything that comes out of his mouth, such that they're putting Fauci dolls on their shelves and filming themselves on Zoom and patting themselves on the back for being so awesome that they would have a Fauci doll. If Fauci had stuck to the truth... Then you wouldn't have had all these stupid mask mandates and people thrown off airplanes, two year olds being thrown off airplanes because they wouldn't keep their masks on. And it would have taken away any sort of rationalization for the Biden administration to impose a mask mandate or be seen as violating federal law when you go on an airplane even now. Even now, here we are in the state of Texas, we don't have mask mandates anymore. You have businesses, theoretically, who are able to make their own decisions in that regard. But nobody's wearing masks anymore. We go into stores, nobody's wearing masks. None of the stores that have previously required masks are requiring them anymore. I can't speak for the rest of the country, but that's how it is in the state of Texas now. We could have avoided all this mask nonsense if Fauci had been honest. It's just maddening. They weren't effective, but, oh, go ahead. Everybody should wear a mask. Unbelievable. And, of course, he was talking in these emails about other things as well. The Federalist talks about it. Dr. Anthony Fauci knew about U.S. funding for the gain-of-function research occurring at the Wuhan lab in China, but downplayed its role in the COVID-19 pandemic, new emails show. Fauci recently denied that specific research was used by the Overseas Virology Institute or funded by him. Yeah, he denied it, but it wasn't true. In emails acquired by BuzzFeed News, Fauci conversed with NIAID Principal Deputy Director Hugh Auschenkloss in a conversation labeled important about an article detailing the gain of function research occurring in Wuhan through the Wuhan Virology Institute. And it gives some of the details of that particular email. But this is kind of crazy. Gain of function research. I thought he said he wasn't into gain of function research. Isn't that what he told Senator Paul? The U.S. government, they report, banned funding for the gain-of-function research in 2014. We told you about that. But the Wuhan Institute of Virology was still operating and conducting the controversial research using U.S. taxpayer dollars. This funding was funneled unscrutinized to the EcoHealth Alliance by the NEA led by Fauci to propel Wuhan's studies on bat coronaviruses. (laughs) It's just you get so upset even reading this and allowed NIAID to hide research that they said didn't meet the standard for gain of function from the potential pandemic pathogens control and oversight framework review board. I realize this is a lot of wording. Fauci previously defended gain of function research in 2012 and said it might be worth it even if it caused a pandemic. I mean, can you even... Wrap your head around the possibilities here. I I don't know about you, but I have questions. I have a lot of questions. I have a lot of questions that haven't been asked publicly that I know of, but probably are being asked privately. And the word "plandemic" comes to mind. Do you know what I'm saying? Plandemic. Perhaps it was planned. Well, they did plan to try to get to the bottom of the coronavirus issue by. Putting together this coronavirus in the Wuhan Institute of Virology, which was funded, this gain of function research was funded through another person, uh, Peter Daszak, who in fact was one of the people tasked with being on the investigative force, looking into whether or not there was a lab leak and then was like, oh, yeah, no lab leak. Yeah, that's good. Do you put the fox in charge of the hen house as well? That's a really good move, U.S. government. No, it shouldn't be the case that Fauci is merely fired. It should be the case that Fauci is fully investigated and Francis Collins as well. Francis Collins as well. Will it ever happen under a Democrat administration? Completely unlikely. But I hope that Senator Paul and other Republican lawmakers like him will not let this go. Because it's not just about the fact that he was putting out outrageous emails. It's the fact that all roads are pointing to the fact that he didn't tell the truth at all on some major things. Think of all the people who have died through this pandemic. It's maddening. We're going to take a break. We'll be right back. Don't go away. Janet Meffer today is proud to partner with Preborn to help save babies' lives. Well, my name is
1: Dan Steiner, and I'm the president of Preborn. Ultrasound truly is a game changer. When a mom comes into a pregnancy center under pressure to abort her child, perhaps the dad's gone, perhaps her mother is pressuring her, most of the time in her heart she doesn't want to abort, but what she needs is something that will give her the strength to choose life against the pressures that are forcing her to consider abortion. That's the ultrasound. If she hears her baby's heartbeat and sees that baby on ultrasound, everything's different.
0: Will you join us in saving babies' lives? Preborn funds pregnancy centers across the nation so they can offer free ultrasounds to women in crisis pregnancies. Ultrasound is a game changer because when abortion minded women actually see their babies in their wombs for themselves, 80% of the time they choose life. Would you please join us at Janet Meffer today to support the ministry of preborn? For $140, you can provide five free ultrasounds to women in crisis pregnancies. One ultrasound is just $28, and every gift helps. To donate, please call now, 855 402 Baby. That's 855-402-2229 or there's a banner to click at janetmefford.com. All gifts are tax deductible and 100% of your gift goes directly towards saving babies. You can get involved and you can help save a life for a gift of $140. Five free ultrasounds will be offered to women in crisis pregnancies. Let's do more than talk about abortion. Let's save some lives. Please call now with your gift, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-BABY. 855-402-2229. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now here's Janet. All right. Well, as I have previously told you, we have the resignation that has just spread across evangelicalism like wildfire in the last few weeks, and that is the resignation of Dr. Russell Moore from the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission at the Southern Baptist Convention. Man, I wish he had a shorter title. Every time I say that, I feel like I'm losing brain cells, but at any rate, he resigned, he's leaving, he's going to Christianity today, he's going to become a public theologian. I say, it's perfect for you, Russell. That is the perfect place for you. You just enjoy those progressives and you just knock yourself out. Oh, and by the way, He's leaving the SBC. This is from a news story via Religion News Service. He has moved on personally, attending a Tennessee church that is not affiliated with the Southern Baptist Convention. TJ Timms, who is the lead pastor of Emanuel Nashville, announced on social media this week that Moore is now the church's minister in residence. He said in a video, we want to be a home base for Dr. Moore and his family as he serves the body of Christ at large. What if the body of Christ at large doesn't want to be served by Russell Moore? Are we allowed to? T- I mean, I guess you could just turn him off, but it's like, you know, these people never just go away. What is it with It's kind of like I used to say about some of these big scandals that happen in the church. They never go away. They just kind of bide their time and then they resurface. They're like, you know, gophers coming out of the golf holes or something like, oh, there he is. Okay, he's going back down. Oh, but there he is again. Uh, This is what goes on in Christendom. You just, you can't ever just retire and go over and work at Home Depot or something. You always have to find another place in ministry and talk about this was your lifelong dream to work at, fill in the blank, whatever it happens to be. So he's left the SBC. No surprise there, but I'll tell you what is really crazy And that is another RNS story that's come out, Religion News Service, one of his likely favorites because they're so darn liberal over there and pro-gay and everything else. Religion News Service has this headline, Russell Moore to ERLC trustees, they want me to live in psychological terror. Uh, yeah. In February of 2020, the president of the ERLC, Russell Moore, defended himself after a second task force was mounted to investigate complaints against him. And man, this thing is long and boring. It's just so long and boring. It's yeah, You can tell it's written by somebody who spent too much time in academia. It just rambles on and on and on and on. And the bottom line is Russell Moore is painting himself as just one long victim. By the way, a leaked email. Who in the world do you think leaked the email to RNS or leaked it to somebody who leaked it to RNS. Let's see. Hmm. Let me think for a moment. Who would have a motivation to leak an I'm a victim letter to RNS? Who could possibly have come up with that idea? I don't know. It's I'm flummoxed. I have no clue at all who might have any sort of motivation to leak a letter, a private email to religion news service shortly after leaving. (laughs) Why? <laughs> Who would have that motivation? Head scratch, head scratch. Okay, so he's rambling on about all of his complaints, and he talks about, this is one portion of it, I will not bore you with this long, ridiculous email, but he talks about one of the absolutely draining and unrelenting issues that he's had to deal with as head of the ERLC is that of racial reconciliation. This is what he writes. My family and I have faced constant threats from white nationalists and white supremacists. Pardon me for laughing, but I don't believe this for a minute, including within our convention. Really? Are there a lot of white nationalists and white supremacists of the Ku Klux Klan variety running around the Southern Baptist Convention sending threats to Russell Moore? I don't buy it. But, but I'll tell you why. Because people like Russell Moore throw around the term white nationalist to mean Trump voters. And, and do I really believe that Trump voters are threatening him like of the physical violence variety? I don't believe that either. I mean, maybe there's one nut or, or two, but I don't believe that any decent Southern Baptist who voted for Trump is sending him threats, real threats that, that completely concern him. Maybe I'm too cynical. I mean, I hope he's not getting threats. I don't want him to get actual threats. But when you're talking about white nationalists and white supremacists and you see how the left constantly uses those same terms to mean rank and file normal people who just happen to vote for a Republican in the last election, then you've emptied those ridiculously loaded terms to to an extent where we don't even believe them. We don't. He says some of them have been involved in neo Confederate activities, going back for years. What's a neo Confederate activity? Did they do like civil war reenactments? Were they involved in I don't know working at a museum honoring you know civil war generals? I who knows? You're not you're supposed to read into this all kinds of horrors. B- insert sharp intake of breath here. <gasps> People who are involved in neo Confederate activities have been threatening Russell Moore. He doesn't name names, of course. Some are involved with groups, he says, funded by white nationalist nativist organizations. What does that mean? I don't know. Some of them have just expressed raw racist sentiment behind closed doors. What is raw racist sentiment? They want to deflect the issue to arcane discussions that people do not understand, such as critical race theory. Yeah, arcane discussions that people don't understand. No, Russell, we understand critical race theory just fine. What we don't understand is why you and your cronies, the liberal elites at the SBC, continue to lie about the fact that critical race theory has absolutely no place in the SBC when we can point to all sorts of instances and videos, people on video, espousing critical race theory, even as you guys work really hard to scrub the videos off the Internet, or at least I know Al Mohler did at one point. He says, There is no Southern Baptist that I know of any ethnicity who is motivated by any critical theory, but by the text of Ephesians and Galatians and Romans, the gospel themselves, the framework of revelation. Yeah, right. Okay, sure, Russell. From the very beginning of my service, he says, I have been attacked with the most vicious guerrilla tactics on such matters and have been told to be quiet about this by others. You've been attacked in a guerrilla warfare way about critical race theory. Nobody was talking about critical race theory back in 2014, Dr. Moore. I was there at the beginning of your tenure. Nobody was talking about critical race theory, much less launching guerrilla tactics against you. He says one SBC leader who was at the forefront of these behind closed doors assaults, assaults had already ripped me to shreds verbally for saying in 2011 that the Southern Baptist Convention should elect an African-American president. Why would anybody shred you verbally for saying that? See, I don't believe that either. I think there's no context here. It's kind of like Meghan Markle slamming the royal family and saying, you know, Archie, my son was denied the Prince title because they're a bunch of racists. And then it comes out that no, it's because of the royal family succession line that Archie doesn't have a title. It has nothing to do with whether or not his mother is half black. So I, I'm just taking this with a big grain of salt. Oh, and then he says another SBC leader used constant pressure against me in protest of our hiring of Daniel Darling and Trillian new bell in 2013 and at the time it was said that they didn't have adequate southern baptist backgrounds when i answered this man's concerns to his face he said i was really just concerned about that black girl whether she's an egalitarian when i asked what possibly could lead him to think that a woman who has written complementarian articles for complementarian websites was an egalitarian he responded a lot of those black girls are the same leader also let me have it well who said this Who said this? Then he complains that he's called a liberal. How can people call me a liberal? I believe in the inerrancy of scripture, in the authority of scripture. I've spent my life defending such concepts as the exclusivity of Christ for salvation. Right. But see, we're focused on what you did that has nothing to do with the Bible. We're focused on what you actually do, not what you profess, because that's what you do when you're trying to discern whether or not somebody is problematic. So he's denying he's a liberal. He he then goes on to say, oh, you know, I care about social justice, but I, I don't really believe in social justice. And I love bigots. You do? You love bigots? Then he says... Uh, Here's the pattern, his experience in the SBC. Find a way to investigate me in secret so that Southern Baptists do not hear what goes on in those rooms. Oh, you mean like your backdoor meeting with gay activists in 2014, that secret backdoor meeting? Because you've never told anybody in the Southern Baptist Convention publicly what you discussed with gay activists in 2014. Are you now suddenly against secret meetings? I guess so. Then he says uh, he's been charged with not playing enough to the Bubbas and the rednecks. They pay the bills. He says, I don't think we have Bubbas and rednecks. I find such slurs offensive and derogatory. Okay, this is the same guy who came on board and I've written all about this. This is the same guy who came on board and started likening conservatives to a caricature of Elmer Gantry meets Yosemite Sam. But he's the man who's going to stand up against offensive and derogatory slurs. I just, you know what, move on to your non-SBC church dr moore we don't wish you ill we just want to congratulate you on finally finding the right home for yourself with the progressives and the ridiculous critical race theory adherence over at christianity today have a good time (laughs) i'll leave it at that oh pray for the sbc thanks for being with us we gotta go we'll see you next time though god bless